You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. And now, let's get into the podcast. Good morning. And welcome to everybody online as well. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. So I hope you're doing well this morning. Um, the last three weeks, we've been talking about the book of Micah, more specifically Micah 6, verse uh, 6 to 8, and then especially the last verse, right? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly with your Lord, with your God. And, and it's what the Lord requires of us. Not good to haves, not, not good suggestions. It's what he requires of us. And in order to do that, it requires a good understanding of God. It requires for us to have an encounter with God. Now, I'll circle back to this passage later. But I would like to start by looking at another prophet, a contemporary of Micah, in fact. Um, in fact, Micah quoted him. Or maybe the other way around. Maybe he quoted Micah. Scholars don't quite agree on it. But... Micah 4, verse 1 to 3, and Isaiah 2, verse 2 to 4, are virtually identical. Those were both prophets in the southern kingdom of Judah. They knew each other, or at least they knew of each other. And Micah is a minor prophet, so-called because the writings we have of him are relatively few. It's a short book. Isaiah is a major prophet because he wrote extensively. He wrote a big book, 66 chapters. Isaiah is also sometimes called the prince of prophets, so-called because of the way he writes and his, his majestic visions. Um, also, he's the most quoted prophet in the Old Testament, so prince of prophets, but also because he might have been of royal blood. Jewish tradition has it that his father, um, Amos, was a, uh, a brother of King Amaziah making Isaiah the cousin of King Uzziah. And the passage we're looking at today is a vision that Isaiah had in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, being of royal blood, it might have given him more access to the royal court. Um, so he knew exactly what was going on there in the religious and the, and the political elite. Um, he might have been called upon more easily by kings to come and, and give his visions and, 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 and consult him in religious matters. And Isaiah, like Micah, also warned the people of Judah, and more specifically the religious elite and the, the political leaders of the country, to turn from their ways. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, he already says, Stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. You come into the courts of the temple to bring sacrifices, to worship God, to pray to Him, but your hands are full of blood. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what's right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In other words, you come to the temple, you fulfill all your religious duties, but your hearts are far from me. You come to church on every Sunday, you sing your worship songs, you pray, you, you give your tithes, but on Monday morning, nobody can tell you're a Christian. In fact, it's quite the opposite. That's the kind of message that Isaiah was giving to the leaders of his country. 
this ties in what we talked about in the last few weeks, doesn't it? Um, today, I would like to look at how Isaiah came to preach this message. In Isaiah 6, we can see the calling of Isaiah, or the commissioning of Isaiah, and we see how he was impacted by an encounter with God. Let's read it together. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Isaiah had this encounter with God, a vision of the throne room of heaven. He was transported to the throne room of heaven. And Isaiah got a glimpse of the holiness of God. And it deeply touched him. It changed the course of his life. We see in this vision the Lord sitting on his throne. High and exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. Just the train of his robe. That's how big God is. He doesn't fit in a temple. He sticks way out above it. And, and the, just the train of his robe fills the temple. In Isaiah 66, we read that the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Not even the earth can contain God. That's how big he is. He is in a different category. Not like any of the other gods that were worshipped at the time in the surrounding countries. He is the creator. We are the created. Seraphs are flying above him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Mighty beings with six wings. Constantly in God's presence. And when they call out with their booming voices, the temple shakes. Holy, holy, holy. Maybe that's not the first thing you think about. Holy, I mean. We often think about God as eternal, as wise, as good, as faithful, as transcendent, as just, as full of mercy, grace, and love. Yet the seraphs call out holy, holy, holy. The only attribute of God that is in Scripture that's, that's in the superlative, that's, that's repeated. No other attribute is so praised. Not love, love, love. Not grace, grace, grace. Not justice, justice, justice. But holy, holy, holy. Now what does that mean? Separateness. Set apart. Holy other. God is not like us. He created us. Everything we know He created. Everything we know and we see He sustains. 
Like a painter is different from what he has painted, his painting or a sculpture different from his statue. So God is completely different from us. And we can't, other than what he's revealed about us, we cannot even know him. Just think about it. He has no beginning and no end. How, how do you wrap your hand around that? He has always been and will always be. Everything else I know has a beginning or an end. But there was nothing before God. And it's not because he was the first to come into being. No, because he's always been. <laughs> Mind-blowing. Now, recently I was looking at some, some YouTube videos about the universe and the incomprehensible distances and sizes that, that, that are there. Stars so big that, that our sun is just a fleck of dust compared to it. Scientists cannot even estimate the number of stars, not even estimate the number of galaxies. No one knows where the edge of the universe is. I think I read that of the observable universe, how they talk about it, is 94 billion light years across or something like that. Incomprehensible. And God is bigger than that. He created all that. Holy. Totally unique. Holy other than anything else. High and exalted, it says in verse 1. Holiness is what distinguishes him from everything else. That sets him apart. And the seraphim use, use their wings to cover themselves. They can't stand to have the Holy One look upon their createdness. They cover their faces because they can't look at His glory. Moses had a similar experience. When he asked, Lord, I want to see your glory, the Lord said, I will let my goodness pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face and live. Exodus 33. His glory is blinding. Revelation 1 verse 16, we find another picture of the throne room of heaven. And we read that his face was like the blazing sun shining in all its brilliance. It's like the sun. We can't not look into it. We cannot even get close to it. Purity, absolute perfection. Nothing unholy can stand in his presence. It will burn up like getting too close to the sun. And Isaiah says in verse 5, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm, I'm ruined. Meeting the, the, the holy living God smashes our myths of autonomy. The myths that humans are their own authority. We are in charge of our own lives. We are our own lords. That's what we call the fear of the Lord. That's when we realize that God is God. and We, we are just his creation. We are unholy. He is holy. And only by an act of God's grace can we stand in his presence. Now imagine being Isaiah. Seeing the Holy One sitting there, sticking high above the temple. The train of his robe just filling the temple. Seraphs calling to each other, holy, holy, holy. And the temple shaking, filled with smoke. Must have been an awesome, yet terrifying experience. And he realizes that he's in trouble. There's no way that he can stand in the presence of the Lord. And Isaiah confesses that what comes off his lips reveals something that's deep in his heart. Matthew 11, it says, But the things that come out of the person's mouth 
come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And Isaiah realizes that he might be a moral person, upstanding citizen, but there's darkness in his heart. Isaiah trembles. He knew he's in trouble. That in the presence of such holiness, he should rightly die. We often ignore this, and we think that we're good people. We like to think of ourselves good people, right? Isaiah is a good person. Yet, in the presence of such holiness, our claims of being good people is just shallow. We must either own up to our sinfulness or change our concept of God altogether. So we might construct an idea that, well, God is love, right? So how can he let anybody perish? Therefore, everybody should go to heaven. Yet that downplays his holiness. Yes, God is loving. But he's also holy. And because of that, he showed his love in such a way that it wouldn't violate his holiness. We can see in Isaiah that the seraph comes with a coal and touches his lips and says, Your sins are atoned for. A foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Only by an act of God can we be made pure. And can we stand before him. God had to devise a way to bring Isaiah into his presence. God's holiness and his love are not in conflict. The love of God is God willing us to know him. Willing us to come close. And they're making it possible. That alone should make us worship. That we can actually stand in his presence and gaze at his beauty. That God wants us to know him. That he wants a relationship with us. And then to make it possible. And because God desires for us to be in his presence, he came up with a plan to make us holy as well. And he did that through Christ. God coming down to earth himself, dying for us, paying the price for us. And now we made white as snow. His grace is amazing. Through Jesus, we can stand. Through Jesus, we discover that God is personal. He's our friend. He cares for us. He watches over us. But we must never lose sight that he alone is God. There exists between him and us an infinite chasm that only he can bridge. I don't know what about you, but I sometimes just get too comfortable with God. But he alone is God. He is holy. And carefully considering that and meditating on the holiness of God causes us to worship. And worship is so much more than singing. It's making God the most important thing in our life. The person who matters most. The one we put our trust in because he alone is trustworthy. The one we sacrifice all for to have in our lives. And that's what Isaiah realizes as well. Seeing God's holiness, fearing in, for his life, God providing in his grace a ways for him to, to, to take away his sins. He just knows from now on, I'm no longer my own. I belong to the Almighty. My life is yours. Here I am. My dreams and my ambitions are no longer what counts. What you want comes first. In all I do, I will seek to honor and represent you. We all need this encounter with the Holy God.
So when you come to worship, come expectant. Come expecting to hear from God. Come to meet Him. Come to get a glimpse of His holiness. We pray and we hope and we plan as a staff every week that you would have an encounter with God when you come here. So come expectant. And it starts with preparing yourself. When the band starts playing on a Sunday morning, it's not just walk-in music until the sermon starts. We are here to worship the holy God of the universe. Now, I understand sometimes you can be late, and there's good reasons, like today. No parking, I know. I'm sorry. But consider how you show up on a Sunday morning. Where's your heart at? Where's your mind at? Are you coming here to hear from God, to encounter Him? How is your heart? Take time to be still, to join in worship. Prepare yourself. Pray that you might get a glimpse of His holiness, to understand the depth of His love and His grace. When we talk about unfathomable distances in the universe, that's how deep the depth of His love and grace is. All right, let's turn back to the passage in Micah. Let's, let's read it again. Micah 6, verse 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Here we read Micah struggling with the same sentiment as Isaiah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? The exalted God. God. Micah had a glimpse of God's holiness as well. Just before these verses, God laid out his cases in a court of law and reminded Micah and the people about all the things he had done for them. And here Micah is, oh, the mighty, mighty God. Micah realizes God's holiness and he asks, what should my response be? What can I bring to atone for my, my sin? 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Where's he going to get that? Sacrificing my oldest son? What can I bring? What can I do before a holy God? Woe to me in the presence of a holy God. In verse 8, God says, Well, you know, O man, or some translations, the one we just read, O mortal. We are just mortals. He's the exalted God. Like Isaiah, who said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Micah reminds us of our mortality. The chasm between a holy God and ourselves. There's nothing we can bring. And it's interesting that Micah mentioned offering is his firstborn. Because that's what God has done for us. We've been given grace. And what he now asks of us is that we live our lives reflecting his character. We are his. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts to reflect his heart. 
He wants our lives to reflect His holiness. To act justly and kindly and walk humbly. That's what He requires of us. We are His. And our only response to seeing His holiness is offering our lives. Here am I. Just like Isaiah did. And Isaiah then gets this weird job description. Basically, God tells him to go and preach to the people of Judah. And that's what he did. We've got 66 chapters of it. But he tells them also, you're not going to be successful. They're not going to listen to you. It's only going to get worse. But he got his great visions of the future, of an, a future mes- that the Messiah will come and put things right. Our lives be go- belong to God and we humbly say, Our lives belong to you and we will obey whether we will be successful or not. Micah also asks, what can I bring? And God says, there's nothing you can bring. I want you to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Now we need to be careful that we don't make a new set of do's and don'ts out of that. A new set of rules. Create a new kind of religious list that we hope will get us into a right relationship with God, that will get us to heaven. God says, I want your heart. It's not about ticking the boxes of religious life. I need your heart to reflect mine. And it starts with the fear of the Lord, knowing who God is and who we are, seeing the chasm that's between him and us, knowing his great mercy and sending his son to bridge that chasm so we can stand righteous before the Father. Now to grow in these areas, like we've looked at in the last three weeks, requires wisdom. Requires a close walk with God. And it will be messy, because it deals with real people and real life. And sometimes the way we should live it out is not that clear. And we need wisdom. Lord, what would you do in this situation? How should I respond to this person? It's not just easy ticking the boxes, following the rules. Jesus seems to be constantly shattering our assumptions of who's in and who's out and who's worthy and who's not worthy. He always hangs out with the wrong people. The morally upright of his time were accusing him. Who are you hanging out with? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. You even show grace to those who are occupying our country. And who is Jesus most upset by? Seems he's always in confrontation with the morally upright and the religious. It's about where your heart is at. Now, there are two passages in Matthew that always shock me. Let's read them. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Shocking. These seem to be people that do everything right, yet their heart is not what it should be. And then there's this second passage in Matthew 25. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I will tell you, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Kind of the kind of things that are hard to do just on a Sunday morning when we worship, right? Those are the kind of things you do from Monday to Saturday. Both passages of Scripture speak of a coming time where God will judge our actions in our lives. And both passages are a surprising picture who's in and who's out. It seems that those who stand with their feet in the mud of everyday life, who have submitted their lives to Jesus, not trying to live according to the rules, but according to the heart of God, who seek to do the Father's will in each and every situation, each and every day again, who represent His justice, His kindness, His humility. Those whose lives are good news to those around them, those are the ones that do the Father's will. To stand with your feet in the muddy situations of everyday life requires wisdom. And luckily, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, it says in Proverbs. It starts with the fear of the Lord, with a holy God. Us realizing that we're in need of grace. Us submitting our lives to a holy God. And it works out with His character. Worked out in our hearts. Walking humbly with the Lord. It's not about us, it's about glorifying Him. And my prayer for you is that you would have such an encounter with the living God. To have the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of all wisdom. To have such a high view of God that your heart's desire is that His heart will be reflected in you. My prayer is that you won't be so come, have become so comfortable with God that well, actually if you have become comfortable with God that you will have this renewed vision of a holy God, a renewed encounter. Let me pray. Lord, you are an amazing God. I pray that with your spirit you will give each of us an encounter with you this week. That as we meditate and we reflect on your beauty and your holiness, your absolute perfection, your justice, your grace, your compassion, your, your, your purity, that we, we see your absolute power, but that there's no falseness and evil in you. That you're absolutely trustworthy. In fact, that all that evil and will I one day burn away and everything will be made new. That your justice will be done. That you will come and put everything right. 
We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your stun. We thank you that we can stand in your presence. You are high and exalted. We stand in awe of you and we want to worship you. Lord, here I am. Take my heart. Take my life. That you may be glorified through me. Thank you for listening and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.